We continue in our sermon series called Pay Attention. It's our study of the letter to the Hebrews, and we come today to Hebrews chapter 12. We made it all the way last week through chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, as we examined that great cloud of witnesses throughout the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 and how they surround us in our run, in our running of the race, following the example of Jesus. We come today to chapter 12, so turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, as we take this section somewhat verse by verse to hear the last thoughts, the final arguments, the last exhortations and encouragement being made by the writer to the Hebrews to this young, new, struggling congregation. Samuel Shoemaker was an Episcopal priest in the heart of New York City for the first half of the 1900s. His sermons are widely distributed and well listened to. He's credited with some of the founding principles and ideas that would go on to become Alcoholics Anonymous, a worldwide ministry and service to alcoholism. He was once asked why he poured his life and ministry into the wretched New York City. His health was failing. His sense of the city's needs were overwhelming and discouraging. He was asked by a friend, why don't you just run away from it all before you're broken by this inhuman burden you have placed on yourself? To which Shoemaker is quoted as having responded, I would like to run away from it all, but a strange man on the cross won't let me. This idea seems to be behind what the writer of Hebrews wants to tell this young congregation as he's encouraging them to endure whatever trials it is that they're enduring. When he comes to chapter 12, it was just last week that we made it all the way to chapter 12, verse 3 in Hebrews, where it's written, Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. The idea we're running up against in this opening section of chapter 12 is that these early believers were facing some kind of struggle. We don't know exactly what it is. We don't know exactly what the cost was. But we know that the cost was great enough that the struggle was becoming difficult. They were tired and weary of sin and of sainthood and were stuck somewhere in between and being hit with persecution. And the writer of Hebrews wants them to know that Jesus has endured the same and much more. So don't lose heart, don't grow weary, but remember that there is a man hanging on the cross who simply won't let you. This letter is keenly aware that the Christian life is hard and difficult and challenging. Maybe you are too. Maybe this has been a season of great challenge for you. Maybe you've experienced hardship or persecution or loss or suffering for one reason or another. And this letter, this writer, and these early believers knew the same experience. And we are to be reminded that Jesus has been there and endured these kinds of challenges and knows our pain and struggles and so whatever price tag the Christian life carries, Jesus knows it. And remember that. That's one of the first things that this section of the letter is going to make abundantly clear. That true participation in the Christian faith always carries a price. True participation in the Christian faith always carries a price. 
Now, sometimes the currency changes. We don't always know what the price will be. But there's always a cost when the kingdom of God shows up. It's an idea I've been mulling around in New Testament passages for some time now. It keeps coming back up. I can't seem to shake it. I don't know if you notice this theme or not. The, the cost that seems to come when the kingdom of God shows up. When Jesus shows up and a man possessed by demons is wreaking havoc on the town, so much so they have him living among the dead outside of town, Jesus casts the demons out of him in the Gospels. Those demons enter into pigs. The pigs run into the water and are drowned. And what do they do? They run Jesus out of town. Why? Because somebody owned the pigs. Somebody paid the price. When Zacchaeus is suddenly converted, what does he do? He doesn't just invite Jesus to his house. He, he pays back more than he's stolen. He's giving up everything he has. Because there's a cost when the kingdom of God shows up and somebody always seems to pay it. And the question we get left with is, is that cost worth it? Is that price tag something we're willing to pay? Or will we run Jesus out of town? It was just last Sunday morning that we looked at the story of the prodigal son. I was reminded, having this theme in the back of my head, of a part of the parable that I'd never really considered that this prodigal son, of course, he takes his father's inheritance. We know that full well. He might as well have said to him, I wish you were dead as he takes that money and runs and he spoils it all and he comes back. And what does the father do? Yes, he welcomes him with open arms, just like God welcomes us back in our sin and rebellion. But you know, what we don't talk about much. The fact that that half of the man's inheritance is still gone. It doesn't come back. So what happens later? When, when the father does die, does one son get a quarter of the inheritance he would have had and the other son gets a quarter again so that everybody's paying some kind of that cost? Or, or does one son get the half inheritance and the other one get zero? It doesn't matter. My point is the kingdom of God shows up and there's a real cost. There's a real loss involved, both in our rebellion and the price of redemption. The price of salvation. Sometimes the cost is, is actually financial. There are jobs that Christians will not do. There are deals they won't make, promotions they won't get, conspiracies they refuse to join. Tom Long reminds us that sometimes the cost is social. Families have been known to disown converts in their own family. People of one religion sometimes avoid adherence of another so conversion actually does cost something. Some Christians are disowned by their families. Others have to distance themselves from certain friends. Others have to abstain from certain relationships. Others have to push certain priorities in their social life aside as they come to Jesus. In some cultural settings, the cost can be intellectual or emotional. It's far more demanding to figure out how to love your enemies than it is to figure out how to hate them. It's taxing to be devoted to a life of true prayer and devotion to God. It's easier to simply be drawn with the world to images of violence and warfare that seem to be the least imaginative solution we could come up with to our problems. Whether it's financial or social or emotional or intellectual or even political, 
It turns out the cross is just always the heaviest piece of furniture to move, and Christians are charged with the considerable task of picking it up and carrying it every single day. The Christian commitment carries a price tag, and sometimes Christians are just simply not willing to pay the cost. And it seems like these early Christians, these believers, were facing hardships that were difficult enough to make them wonder if this cost was worth it. The social changes, the life changes, the financial changes, the new moral compass, the new ethical guidelines they suddenly have to live by in light of their newfound faith. Is this really worth it? And the writer of the Hebrews wants them to know it is. And not only is it worth it, it's doable. You can Endure, And that theme of endurance runs through the letter as he calls them to pay attention, to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus as they run this race, this life of faith. So in your struggle against sin, consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. You see, in your struggle against sin, verse 4 says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. My child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure, verse 7 says, endure trials for the sake of discipline. For the sake of discipline. Well, boy, if you weren't engaged with the letter to the Hebrews yet, this is an exciting passage for you. It's a passage on discipline. We've moved now from the fun imagery and and lovely language about running and races and enduring to language about discipline. It can be challenging for us. I think sometimes we kind of turn the Bible off at some of those points. We start talking about God punishing or giving out discipline. In one way, we don't really like those passages because, well, they're hard and they tell us that things are going to be difficult for a reason. On the other hand, sometimes we don't like them because this doesn't seem like the kind of God we're used to, vindictive maybe, or harsh or punishing. And really that tells us more about what we think about punishment and what punishment has become in our world than it does about the justice of God. So we we need to take a closer look as we read these words to see what is it that the writer to the Hebrews is really trying to convey. My wife and I celebrated an anniversary last week. And so on a Monday evening, we did what all people do when they celebrate an anniversary and mark the occasion of another year of marriage. We loaded up the minivan and took the kids to the splash pad. Now, before you all chastise me for uh, this terrible gesture of, of loving devotion. It was her idea. And uh, just a couple days before, we did get the babysitter and take a little time to ourselves. So no need for intervention. Thank you for your uh, polite advice. But on our anniversary, we took our kids to the splash pad, had a little picnic in the park. Uh, it was great. We enjoyed our time. We found a little spot in the shade, put our picnic blanket down. I was sitting there with our four-month-old while our two toddlers ran about on the concrete pad with all the different contraptions that spray water and let you run around and get wet and enjoy yourself in the evening. As I sat there, I noticed something kept happening over and over again. You see, just off the edge of this concrete 
square, about the size of a half basketball court. On one whole side of the court, the water seemed to drain off. It was supposed to drain to the middle to the drain, maybe to be recycled back into the splash pad, but a whole lot of the water trickled off to one side. And now the grass was not well mowed, so it was grown up pretty high. And so what you couldn't see beneath the surface of this lush green grass is that about six feet of one whole side of the splash pad area are a muddy bog, an unavoidable sinking mess. If someone wanted to dream up a toddler trap for getting dirty, they could not have done it better. So there's the safe place for play and for water and for fun. And there's six feet of lush green grass that you can sink down into your ankles and trip and fall and roll in the mud just to get back to where all the parents are sitting and watching. And we weren't the only families there. There were a number of kids playing at the time. And sure enough, at least one of my kids got covered in mud and needed to be washed off once. But every time after that, I made sure as they left our picnic blanket and headed back to the splash pad, they knew they had to go around, that there was a path to take that was safe on one side, and if they went straight at the splash pad, it was mud disaster all over again. But you know what else I did? I sat there and I just watched as kid after kid made the same mistake. They go running off this elevated splash pad into the grass thinking they're going to run back to their parents and plop, plop, crash right into the, the mud. Now, in my defense, I was too far to really yell anything helpful and the water was too loud for them to really hear me. And I was sitting with a four-month-old, so I couldn't exactly abandon the baby and become the mud zone police. So what was I supposed to do? Well, you better believe that I, I coached my children into understanding how to get back and forth without getting covered in mud. And more or less, every other parent there helped their children figure out how to get back and forth without getting covered in mud. Now, I watched out for my kids. I responded to their needs and helped them learn from their mistakes, but it really didn't feel like it was my place to police everybody and where to walk and decide how muddy maybe they should get. It was their parents' job. Somebody brought them there. Somebody was responsible for them. Was it really my job? Verse 7, endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? One of the central themes of Scripture, of the biblical picture of God's people, is that they are God's sons and daughters. We should expect that God will treat us as a, as a wise parent does and bring us up with the appropriate direction and guidance and care and concern. I mean, there is a part of love and care, isn't there, that has an aspect of discipline to it. Uh, and we may differ as to what discipline should look like, and people have different ideas on how to parent a child. But what a disaster if, as a parent watching, I had no interest in my child's well-being. I watched kid after kid who was not mine make this mistake and it wasn't really my job to fix it because their parents were watching too. But my concern and my care for my children never ended because they belong to me. They're my responsibility. And one of the joys of life with God is the realization that he's not some kind of creator or bureaucrat who sits idly by while the world all goes into a mess of chaos. He is a loving parent who has said, those 
who are mine belong to me, and I care and am concerned for them and for their goodness and well-being and future. And so he creates a future for us, and he makes a way for us to get back to him. Even when we wallow around in the mud of our sin and despair, God will not leave us there. He won't let us go back on that path over and over again. He interrupts our life and says, there is a better way because you are my child. And I think this way of thinking is helpful as we read these verses from Hebrews that speak about discipline and God's love for us as a parent disciplines a child. Verse 8 says, if you do not have that discipline in which all children share, then you are illegitimate and not his children. Moreover, we had human parents to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not be even more willing to subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So if you hear these words of the Father's discipline and words of punishment, there is an expression of joy in those words. Not because punishment is easy or because discipline is always pleasant at the moment, but because there is a loving Father who cares. And what a disaster to be someone who lives outside of the world of discipline because enough to point them in the right way, to stop them from traipsing through the same muddy path over and over again and ruining their life. But we have a God who says, in your sin, I refuse to let you stay there. I've called you into a better way. In fact, if we look up that word for discipline, the Greek word used there that we translate discipline, And look at some of the other places it's used in the New Testament. Maybe it helps us get the idea. In Ephesians 6, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's that word discipline. It carries with it the idea of training, of of cultivating a certain kind of person. And so if you have images of of violence or harshness with that, uh, it's more about building something, moving something in the right direction of correction for the sake of betterment. That's why the same word is used and translated a little bit differently in 2 Timothy 3.16 when it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and yeah, training in righteousness. That same Greek word we translate here, discipline, pedia. It's used again here in Hebrews to say, Endure hardship as discipline, as training, as cultivation, as readiness for life, as correction from God and for God for your good. And so as we look closer, we start to see that some of even the harshest language of this letter is really all about leading us to the wholeness and life that God has for us, which is indeed a better way of living than the life that the world Offers. And so whatever that cost is, the writer tells us, if it's financial, if it's social, if it's political, if it's emotional or intellectual, the price is worth it and the price is payable. 
And you can endure. And when you do endure, you should endure those challenges and hardships as discipline, as training, correction, cultivation for a new and better life, which God gives you in part now as you experience his salvation and promises you in fullness someday when he will make all things new again. It's amazing how suddenly an idea that seems so repulsive of discipline or correction, because we are so unlikely to invite correction and discipline in our lives, can seem so inviting if we become aware of the fact that we don't know the way and that left to our own devices, we will fall flat on our faces in the mud like that prodigal son over and over again. If you're giving me the option between a distant, uninvolved God and the hands of a loving father, I'll choose the hands of a loving parent every time. And that's what's being put before these people. In the midst of their hardship, in the midst of their questioning of the faith, and if the cost is worth it, wouldn't you choose to be in the hands of a loving parent every time. Well, God is that kind of father. Therefore, verse 12 begins to turn, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And think of all the popular verses and, and well-quoted statements in Scripture. This one seems to get left out. I love the, the imagery and language here. Lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Healing is what God calls us to. And to be healed, the next verses remind us that we have to be holy as God is holy. And so moving on from a metaphor of the race, the author now spells out directly the qualities that will allow these readers, these early Christians, to fulfill their Christian calling and to, to get away from the vices that would hinder them from following Jesus. We get words like holiness and defile and profane that help give this big importance to the call to holiness. So verse 14 says, Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then we come to verse 14. Verse 14 through 16 are actually one long sentence that gives us three negative qualities that would negate the calling that we've been given by Christ. You'll see them. It says, see to it that. And two more times it says that, that in verse 14, 15, and on to verse 17. See to it that, it says in verse 15, no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Probably what the writer has in mind here is the idea of, of Christian salvation, of receiving God's grace. And so they're to look out for any members of the group who show signs of giving up on this Christian race. And I wonder, do you keep an eye out for anyone else? The words here seem to make sure that we see to it that no one failed to obtain the grace of God. Our lives ought to be pointed toward others. Even as we receive God's grace, we look to others to be sure that no one else failed to obtain the grace of God. See to it also, see to it that no root of bitterness, it says in verse 15, springs up and causes trouble 
and through it, many become defiled. It turns out that, as you know, even just one bitter person in a big group can defile many. That having bitterness, even in one, can be destructive on the whole group. And so their bitterness is contagious, just as one neglected root of a plant is contagious to the rest and will quickly grow and in time overrun the whole garden. So if there is bitterness among you, cast it out, solve it, resolve it. Don't let it take root and grow and spread. And then we come to our third example in verse 16. Using the example of Esau, it says, See to it that no one becomes like Esau, an immoral and godless person who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought the blessing with tears. So again, it's put in front of us that there is a cost to following Jesus. There are positive and negative demands of discipleship, and we have to take them seriously. And there's this powerful summons using the example of Esau's failure, held out as this graphic warning of what can happen to those who don't take the cost of following Jesus or not following Jesus seriously. Turning from God, ignoring the ways of God, ignoring the commands of God leads to destruction. And there is a day in which it will be too late to turn around and say, I'll take it all. And those who choose destruction for themselves lead a path to death. And no amount of tears later, it says, from Esau was enough to reclaim his birthright. Now is the day of salvation. So this congregation is called to be careful not to become like Esau. He missed the race entirely. He watched it go by. He was too distracted when it was starting. And this is what the preacher fears this congregation is about to do. Like Esau, they're feeling some immediate pressures, some of the hunger pang, some of the temptation, and it's foolishly and short-sightedly causing them to abandon their faith for something more immediately gratifying as was the case with Esau. I'll take the meal right in front of me instead of the inheritance that awaits me. And if they do this, if they choose the meal instead of the race, instead of the joy set before us, they will lose and forsake and give up what awaits them at the finish line. And so to make sure that they know what they will be missing, the preacher warns them, warns them in this next section, in this part of the sermon, of the two roads they might take, of these two mountain images he puts before them. In the scope of his long argument and sermon, it's like the preacher comes now to a fork in the road and there's two signs. One is a big sign that points one direction that says, to Mount Sinai. And another one on the other side points down the other fork in the road and says, to Mount Zion. And the question is asked of these people and of us today, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go today? Mount Sinai and Mount Zion are here in Hebrews as as metaphors of the old and the new covenants. And the preacher's been laboring through this whole sermon, and, and we've been doing this throughout this whole series, trying to get our minds around what he means by all this. He's been laboring through the whole book to get us to go to Mount Zion. And he's afraid at this point that the people are going to choose the other path. 
The road to Mount Sinai, this well-traveled downhill road, this wide road that many enter instead of the narrow, rocky climb up to Mount Zion. And so he breaks in in verses 18 through 22. You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, and a tempest. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Now, Mount Sinai, of course, in the Old Testament is is a good thing. It's a place of the giving of the law, but the preacher uses it here as a negative sign, a symbol of everything that goes wrong in religion when it's severed from the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And so the last part of this chapter wraps up with these images placed before the people that they can choose between Sinai and Zion, between the, the old covenant of the mountain and this new covenant of Jesus, a place at Mount Zion, the city of God, where there's worship every day, all day, in the true sanctuary. Leave behind the guilty consciences of Mount Zion and the old covenant and come where no daily sacrifices are required, where the one perfect sacrifice has already been made. You see, down at Sinai, Abel's blood speaks a word of unfulfilled justice, but the only blood words spoken on Zion are these, this is my blood blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. These are the words of Jesus. And that's why chapter 12, verse 24 can say, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So see to it, the preacher pleads in verse 25, that you don't refuse the one who is speaking. This is the kingdom that you receive, a kingdom that cannot be shaken we're told, where your God is an all-consuming fire. He will not be beaten or destroyed, but exists to refine and to redeem and to heal. And this is the God that you need to pay attention to. This is the choice between the old and new covenant, between Sinai and Zion, between a life that does not consider the cost of discipleship worth it and a life that does. This is the decision you have to make. So we come to the end of this letter and the arguments are getting more sporadic and they're, they're back and forth and we're jumping all over the place it seems because the writer is wanting to, to wrap up this whole letter and put a bow on it and make sure he touches every last thing he wants to say about this new covenant in Jesus. About the life of faith in God. About endurance to the end. About pushing through the trials that you face. Because they are worth the cost. Because you have a loving Father who longs to cultivate and correct and rescue us from the path that we've chosen. And so we do not lose heart. We're encouraged and strengthened by this word. And we give thanks for it, even when it's difficult. Let's pray together. Holy God, we are in awe of who you are. That in our rebellion and sin and distance from you, you came to us and rescued us and brought us back to a life of peace and hope and joy. And so we give you thanks for the discipline, for the correction, for the ways that you cultivate new life out of death, wholeness out of brokenness, newness out of the old. And so we pray that Each and every day as the path is 
placed before us as we come to forks in the road between the way of sin and the way of discipleship to Jesus, we would choose the one less traveled no matter the cost. We make this our aim as we long to be reunited with you in the city of God forever, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. And so, Father, our prayer is that all who hear these words would come to salvation and new life through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.